Corey? Warren. Hi, how are you? Hey, good, man. How are you doing? Good. Glad to connect up with you. Yeah, it's great to connect with you in real time. I watched your appearance on The Daily Show a couple weeks ago. I guess it was about two weeks ago now. And, you know, it was a a fairly scathing critique of men's work. And I think you kind of took the brunt of that in a lot of ways. So I definitely wanted to sort of see what the process was like for you. And, you know, more than anything, I'm curious, did you laugh? Did you think it was funny? Yeah, first of all, I, I did laugh. And secondly, I, I, you know, before I agreed to do the critique, I asked them to send me a few of the shows that they did. And they sent me shows where they had interviewed, you know, like economists like Austin Goolsby in the White House. And and I could see from that show that, that the purpose of the piece was to send out a reporter like Samantha Bee, which is the reporter that interviewed me, and that they then take some serious topic and they get the economists or, in my case, the you know, the gender expert or the male author on men's issues to mm-hmm. comment on that. And then they show some of the opposite um, you know, perspectives on that. So then they edit, and from that editing they take um, different points of view, uh, different uh, facial expressions that make the person look like a fool. Right. But I also saw that in the process they sort of, in a way, it was a mockery of the subject matter that was being um, discussed, but also there was a pattern of it gave the subject matter itself an opportunity to be presented, even though it was being laughed at and put down and the opposite side was being shown and so on, and that people sort of knew that that was, uh, you know, from what I, I talked to a number of people that had, you know, been you know, fans of The Daily Show, and they knew that that was what was going on, and they were able to sort of, um, you know, both get the laugh and get the learning experience at the same time. So I said to myself, all right, clearly I cannot expect to be the exception to the rule and be told by them, oh, we will treat you with great respect and we really want to learn what you are having to say because I know that when people have patterns of doing things, they don't change those patterns quickly. That's the best prediction of future behavior is past behavior. So I went in there knowing that. I also went in there knowing that it was a form of humor and then I had to look at my the Buddhist side of me, which is a significant side of me. And the Buddhist side of me has, you know, helped me to not be so attached to myself and to, you know, into always being treated seriously and being able to laugh at myself and, um, you know, with understanding how not to be attached to oneself comes a much greater ability to laugh at oneself because the, the failure to have a sense of humor about what you do comes usually from too much attachment to what you do and to think that everybody has to treat it seriously all the time. And, and my sort of people who know me know that there's oftentimes I'm, when I'm talking about the issues, like in an interview with Ken, I'm serious about 98% of the time and joking about 2%. But when you're with me out Outside of that, um, I'm joking about you know 20 percent and serious about 20 percent and listening about 60 percent of the time, and so it's a very different modality when I'm not being interviewed. And so right. that, that was uh, you know part of um, what my initial openness was. And then I thought to myself, okay, you know, here I have two choices. One, you know, they called me and um, and asked me to do this, so I have a the choice one is to say, no way, uh, I don't want to enter into being mocked or laughed at. Choice number two is to say, all right, I'll try it. And and then choice number two then becomes an adventure. And choice number one you know, becomes safety. 
And my wife said, gee, you know, this all could be used against you and things like that, because as a rule, women and uh, my wife um, tends to be very protective, and that's a really useful input. And so I, re I really paid careful attention to that. But also, you know, life is a journey, and you, every time you do something, you learn something. Now, the question is, was I right? Did I learn something? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Meaning that, for example, I get into the studio and uh, I'm sat down not for uh, a Ken Wilber interview of maybe an hour where, you know, about 80% of that is just as it is and the stuff that's edited out is stuff that is my worst part and what's edited in is the stuff that is the clearest part, but rather they sit me down for four solid hours. And, wow. And during these four hours, they ask me every question. What the excuse was for them calling me was that, the demographic had changed so that women were now more frequently a part of the workplace than men are. Now, this is a very deceptive statistic. It's, you know, a statistic based on looking at part-time and full-time men and women workers. And, you know, when you look at part-time and full-time, that's technically true. But when you look at the percentage of men that are working full-time versus the percentage of women working full-time, that isn't close to being true. But, you know, it is a demographic that does illustrate a certain trend, and that's important to be recognized and to be aired. So the typical thing that they would do is to, well, at first they'd interviewed me for four hours, and then they did everything with me. When I say everything with me, they have this attractive young woman named Samantha B. interviewing me, and she'll do things like reach across and go, oh, Dr. Farrell, you are so that was such a brilliant answer and she'll touch me on my leg and go you know um, sweetie pie you are just the cutest in the world oh my goodness I'm making you blush I am so sorry sugar plum you are just so, you're so sweet to blush like that how could such an intelligent man blush so so oh my goodness you're blushing even more oh sweetie pie oh you know oh sugar plum oh um you know and then then so that's the type of thing she would do and then two minutes later they'd say okay we need some more takes from you and then she she would roll her eyes and this is even without me talking she'd roll her eyes and go oh my god you can't be really serious Another time she'll go, oh, my goodness, that's so fascinating. Another time she'll, she'd go, oh, my goodness, that's so fascinating. <laughs> so she, so that, and then now two things are happening here. One camera's on her saying, you know, all these diversity of responses while, you know, the camera's only partially on me so they can cut anything they want to from her while the credibility of me being there seems to be um, that it's a real response from her to something I'm saying. And then they work at reverse. They have another camera on me, and that camera on me is sometimes she'll say something outrageous and like I'll say that, um, you know, that nurses are oftentimes, you know, females are, we discriminate in favor of females when we hire a nurse because we allow a nurse to touch both males and females, whereas many women patients do not want a male nurse touching them. And that therefore gives a female nurse more flexibility. And so that leads many hospitals to hiring more female nurses than male nurses and, and treating the male nurses with limited types of access to patients. And so, and then she'll roll her eyes and go, oh, so this is really hard on the male doctors who have to only have sex with more female nurses than male nurses. Oh, those poor doctors. Um, <laughs> and, um, right. And, 
She'll go on like that, and then she'll say, um, I'll make another comment, and she'll go, oh, so men are doing that, they're pusswads. Now, I will laugh at that comment, but what you will see edited in is something that she said that has that was serious, that I was responding to seriously. So what creates laughter is an inappropriate response to an outrageous thing that she does. You know, she might touch me on my knee and then I would, then I would be serious. I would in, in fact laugh or you know, blush, but she might have me look serious or something that would look outrageous as a response to whatever she's doing. So what I learned is that, you know, the things that make you learn are in many ways the opposite of the things that make you laugh. So, for example, if the show is on the male powerlessness and male powerlessness understands why there can be mostly men in three branches of government and yet, despite that, why men can feel powerless by committing suicide more, being depressed more, and things like that. And what makes you learn is getting more information about how men can feel powerless even as they dominate in the three branches of government. What makes you laugh is hearing somebody like me say men feel powerless and then cutting me off right away and switching over to, oh, yes, men are so powerless. There, there's all men in the top of government. There's all men in the top of legislature. There's all men in the top of the judiciary. There's all men in the top of corporations, you know, and boom, boom, boom. And, and then Dr. Farrell says men are very powerless. And that, right. of course, makes you laugh because, you know, it appears that, the, that what I'm saying is totally absurd. And right. So, well, especially when, you, you know, you record four hours' worth of material and maybe, what, 45 seconds' worth of it makes it into the clip. Exactly. And so what I learned in the adventure of all this is that I can, you know, that, that what's going to happen is I will see how things like this are done. And even though I knew, I guessed at a fair amount of that somewhat accurately, the actual experience of it was um, much more um, of a learning experience for me. Right, right. Now, The Daily Show, I mean, this is, this is a kind of a tough spot for you in general. I mean, even if you were to do, you know, a piece with Jon Stewart and not sort of one of, the, one of the commentary pieces with Samantha Bee, which, you know, usually tend to be pretty snarky and sarcastic and funny. Whereas Jon Stewart, you know, as an interviewer, I think the reason why a lot of younger people really like him is, is he really straddles this line between cynicism and authenticity. And, uh, you know, and he does a really an interesting job doing that. And, you know, unfortunately, I think this time around, you sort of fell on the, uh, <laughs> on the cynical side of the stick. But at the same time, I mean, it seems like even if you were sitting down in front of Jon Stewart and, you know, he was giving you a, a quote-unquote a fair hearing on the points you were trying to make, it's still largely an uphill battle. I mean, The Daily Show is a, it's a pretty liberal show where, you know, sort of automatically it's going to be really difficult to say things like, you know, men have fewer options than women do, especially how that sounds sort of, at, you know, on, on the surface. But, you know, also there's this thing with pop culture where white men are really the only group left that we're allowed to make fun of. Absolutely. And, yes, well, two th- a number of things that you said there that are important. First of all, I, I have to say that I would have much preferred to be interviewed by John Stewart in the sense that I feel I can survive when I'm not edited for a purpose of a laugh, if you know what I mean. Right. And, right. and, and I can make points. And so I, I did talk to the producer. I said, you know, I'm really far more appropriate for what I have to offer to be interviewed directly by John than I am to be sort of, you know, the segments, you know, fodder. But they, they really wanted me for the segments fodder. And so I thought, all right, you know, they will, at least what they will get 
is four hours of serious stuff. And, you know, and what I did see was that the producer and a number of the other producers were sitting around and going, wow, we never thought of things this way before. So it was, in a sense, my way of bringing into the producer system of The Daily Show that there is another way of looking at men, and possibly that will open up some minds, and maybe it won't, but I, it, there's a, it's 100% possible that it won't open up minds if I don't try and get in there. And that's sort of a little bit my attitude toward even the segment that I did was that there may be, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the people watching this will see, oh, there is another way of looking at men. Or I've always wondered why you know, why men 50% more likely to commit suicide at the age of 85 or older than women are. I always wondered why, you know, um, you know, men are mostly the people in prison and being in prison or committing suicide, those don't seem like examples of real power. And, I've, you know, I never thought of power as control over one's life. I always thought of it as people holding positions, but I never thought of they're obligated as a part of a role to, to, to try to get to those positions that maybe an obligation that you're trying to fulfill is not power, even if you're that obligation. It's that power is really, you know, control of your life and figuring out what you want to do. And maybe women have more of that, um, maybe more of that is happening for women than for men. And so if if 1% of people have thought that, and then, you know, 1% of those people can see through this, then there's that tiny little slice that I've communicated with while the rest of the people are just sort of watching it, laughing and going on. And so that was another part of the attitude. Now, another big thing that was happening for me, which was that my father was 99, and and he lived in northeastern New Jersey. And I had just finished a video on my dad, that is, I had interviewed him four times, and had created a couple of videos, a 17-minute and a one-hour one on his life. And I wanted to go out there and show that to him, and he was getting weak, and I didn't know how much longer I would have with him. And so this show also provided me a a plane ticket out there to see him for a few days. It was right after Thanksgiving, and so... And in fact, I did show him both of the videos I had done. He was in absolute ecstasy over those videos and just felt so much like I had created a legacy for him. And he oh, that's great. You know, just so happy. And then he died. Um, oh. oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's a beautiful story, though. Yeah, it was really very... Uh, so I am on a different level, very, very, very grateful that I had the opportunity to see him that time because if I hadn't gone there, we had I had planned a family reunion for January um, and was planning to see him next in January. And But if that had been what had happened, I never would have seen him again. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm really, I'm really happy that worked out for you. I mean, as, as sort of bizarre as those circumstances are, yeah, it was really. I felt very. I'm, you know, as I look back on it and saying, you know, that was, a, you know, some of the. I think the happiest I've ever seen my dad is after he saw those videos. And, oh, that's and, beautiful. Um, and it was really, and he was just, you know, he kept saying, I don't know what I've done to, you know, have such a wonderful son and daughter. And, um, you know, and we were able to really share wonderful moments with him. And, um, and this is a father that, you know, whose father had never spoken to him. I mean, so he had no role modeling of how to behave as an expressive man and that anybody who's 99 years old um, means that they've been, you know, 35 years old when they've come through two world wars and a depression. And so when you've come through two world wars and depression, you have to 
treat life very seriously and um, because <laughs> and you've seen a, a lot of the shadow side of human nature um, by that time and so he was a very critical dad and so it was very and uh, you know I had learned over the years to treat that criticism as being um, something that he did as a way of loving us so that we would we would fix the portions of us that were not right so that we could be more effective in the world and, right. um, and certainly I've grown and learned a great deal from his you know, from that, but it wasn't always easy being criticized like that. Well, I'm sure it must have really uh, motivated your work in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm sure it did. I mean, it's, and yet, yet at the same time, it, it was the opposite of that, meaning that, you know, I had planned to be a lawyer when I was much younger, and um, and my mother had read me a little research bit that said that lawyers were the white-collar profession, which were most likely to be divorced. And the second she read that, I thought to myself, I do not wish to be a lawyer anymore. <laughs> and so, and my father, when I, when I wrote my first three books, my father, at the end of the fourth, you know, every book would say, you know, don't worry, Warren, if, you, if your next book fails, you can always get a job. Um, so from the, <laughs> from the perspective of a man that grew up in a depression and two world wars, you did not become a man by writing a book, writing right? Because that was too risky. You did not become a man by thinking. You became a man by getting out there and being a lawyer, uh, like you originally started out to be. When I could be proud of you, you know that type of thing. And so there was a lot of stuff to overcome to survive as a writer, especially when you know, at the beginning I was writing books that were almost completely oriented toward supporting the women's movement and what the women's movement was saying. And as a result of that, I was making significant income. But the second I started to understand men and started to articulate men's perspectives, the amount of income that I, you know, I went from being quite wealthy to losing money 12 out of 15 years after I started articulating men's perspectives. Wow. Wow. I mean, it, which, which only goes to show you how much of the, uh, the cultural grain you're really cutting against. Oh, yes. I mean, I was at one point so fearful that, you know, that I'd have to give all that up that I just, you know, I opened, I remember opening up to Ken Wilber and saying, um, you know, I just don't know. I feel like I don't, I can't do this anymore. And, um, and him just encouraging me to, you know, to do the best I could to go on. Right. And what was your father's name? Tom, Tom Farrell. Tom Farrell. So 99 years old. He, I mean, he, he witnessed the majority of the 20th century. Yeah. And so he, I mean, he witnessed the rise of the feminist movement from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It's American roots in the 20th century anyway. He's witnessed all of the uh, attempts at men redefining their own role, which I, you know, <laughs> whenever I hear a guy who, you know, lived through both world wars and I try to imagine them in the 1990s dealing with that whole sort of sensitive 90s guy archetype, I mean, that must have driven him crazy in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, when I would question football, you know, and my attitude toward football, you know, for the you know people that haven't followed my work is that it is the most brilliant sport ever invented and its potential for more life lessons to come from football than any other single sport. And at the same time, there's no real need to do it in tackle, concussion, spinal cord breaking um, mode. We can do it on, you know, on surfaces. We can play flag football and get all those same experiences um, out of football and so that we have to create an evolutionary shift from training men to be disposable in order to have them be open 
to becoming warriors, to be disposable at war, disposable in the workplace, to training men to be valuable and valued and value themselves, and at the same time still have the functions in the society of the firefighter who is the coal miner, the oil rig person, and the warrior who is out there, and that there's room in the society for some men to be some, some of those things and some men to be others, but to be training heroes. You know, and worshiping men, you know, who are football players, and not the men who are sensitive, loving, open, caring, tender, and kind, which is not the core essence of what football encourages. Um, you know, there are relatively small number of cheerleaders that say, "Gee, you know, I noticed that when you were playing football, you were being so sensitive, and you were listening to the other players so carefully, and you were being so caring and loving and kind playing football. So, therefore, when you lost your position on the team because you had too much of that, I want to continue cheering for you anyway." Uh, the football player notices that the cheerleader cheers for his replaceable part. And so, um, you know, those types of analyses on my part, uh, when my father would, would, you know, read them, he would say, oh, my God, Warren, you're never going to make a living making comments like that. <laughs> it's because right. yeah. Because for him, it was all about making a living. And for me, it was all about, can I possibly articulate the things I'm saying and manage to make a living? (laughs) Right. Right. Well, that whole move, you know, that whole sort of 90s sensitive guy move, which which was another big part of the satire in the Daily Show clip. I mean, that's what... Yes, absolutely. The entire second half of that was really, you know, uh, was really gunning for that... You know, the the stereotypical kind of hairy-chested guys beating the drum in the forest and sharing their feelings. I mean, it really seemed to be going, you know, at that sort of version of men's work with with a lot of ferocity. But the interesting thing, and, and this is something I haven't really seen a lot of people picking up as I've been looking at sort of reactions to this clip, is is how Samantha Bee was herself parodying women alongside men by really playing up this role of like the the unevolved female who's just looking for that macho motorcycle riding, you know, jerk. Yeah, um, and she was definitely. really playing into that. And that's what the show, I think, is known for, noted for, although if you say that many people were picking it up, many, many people, it's at least people who wrote to me, which, of course, is a very self-selected group of people, yeah. many of them did get that and did get that sort of like the, you know, the, the, the brilliance of that segment is that it's sort of both tongue-in-cheeking the person being interviewed, and then, then you get to laugh at the, like, it would be a redneck person's reactions to me saying that men should be able to cry. And, right. And, and then you get some redneck going, oh, yeah, man, just, you know, and then he mocks that. But yet it's also the, the, the reaction and the lack of open-mindedness is simultaneously a mockery of the closed-mindedness of that redneck type of person. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> They're really brilliant at what they do. Yes, they really are. And, and, yeah. And what I'd love to do is, you know, to go back on there with, you know, with John Stewart and actually do a real dialogue and, you know, let him have at me. And, and um, I think it would be a wonderful um, back and forth that we could do that would create laughter for those that were inclined and a learning experience for those that were inclined. You know, when you're talking about 
how men are suffering from a lack of options. And of course, Samantha B jumps right to the, oh, 485 out of Fortune 500 companies, those poor yeah. 485 guys that are running these companies, you know, that really sucks for them. But, you know, the, the nuance of what you were talking about, you were addressing, you know, like how do men and women actually stack up together, you know, at the end of the day in the public sphere. But a big part of the point you were trying to make is the private sphere. And how, you know, men really don't have any training, any sort of teaching whatsoever as to how to, you know, how to be a good father, how to be emotionally available, how to, uh, how to be a warrior of the interiors alongside the, the exterior warriorship. Absolutely. And, and then I'm also, in addition to that, connecting the private and the public, that if you train a boy to be loved by training him to earn money, and then and you tell him so right from the very beginning boys as a rule are expected to do what i call the five d's you know to pay for dinner to pay for the date to pay for the drinks to pay for the you know the the different um, expenses with driving and so on and and so he learns that he's more lovable if you invite a woman on a ski weekend and uh, that you're you have to take the risk of rejection as a you know 14 15 16 17 18 year old boy who barely knows women and barely knows sex and and you're the least less mature sex and you're still supposed to take the risks of rejection while women get the chance to say yes or no and then you pay for those risks by paying for that ski weekend and the dinners and the dates and the drinks and the the flowers and so on then you start learning that for the rest of my life if you know i'm if my future wife wants children that I need to not only she has the option to raise the children raise money uh, or do some combination of both and I have the expectation to you know work full-time or work full-time or work full-time and my Mm -hmm. three options are this you know no options so I learn to be loved and valued by becoming more of an earner. So then when I get to be able to earn 100 to $200,000 a year, and I don't question, do I have enough money? What do I want out of my life? So I continue earning, and I may earn a million dollars a year plus bonuses. But if I'm doing that for um, 80 hours a week and I have no life and my wife and children are living on the mansion that I create and I don't get to love them, be loved by them and I'm, I'm out there feeling lonely and traveling in isolated places and gone for weeks at a time and I don't get to see my children's recitals or have the love of my wife and I end up having an affair that I feel you know is to get some nurturance on, on the road and the only thing I'm called is unfaithful that's a different set of questions than women ask when they earn $100,000 a year, which is, okay, now I'm earning enough money to be able to take care of that part of my life. And a woman asks a different set of questions when she earns that 100, 125000 which is, now I have enough money, but do I have enough of my spiritual life? Do I have enough time for myself? Do I have enough time to go to the gym? Do I have enough time for my women friends? Do I have enough time for my children, for my parents, for my, for my husband? And so she learns to keep a balanced life once she has that 70000 to 125000 Men don't have people encouraging them to have a real balanced life. And that's the connection between men being at the top of the corporation. And those are men that very frequently have not learned to ask what they want for their own life. They've only learned to be better machines than other men. Right. Right. And I think, you know, one of the things that gets lost on a lot of people is, 
you know, just just because the world is, you know, arguably being run by old white men, that doesn't give the average guy on the street any more options in his life, in his in his day to day. Yes, I want people to understand that because you know, certainly if there's 85 corporations, that's only 85 men at the top, or if the top three are mostly men, you know, that's only 250 or so men at the top. But there's also the great majority of the homeless are men and the great majority of people that commit suicide are men and and so on. And so we look at the men that have broken through the glass ceiling, but not the men that have broken through the glass cellar. That's part of it. But on the other hand, the other part is understanding the lack of options that led those men to break that glass ceiling. It's the male machine running without questioning, without developing the internal ability to say, can I be valued by having more time with my family and only being a vice president of this company than being a CEO and having all of my definition of self-esteem be on the basis of how high I've gone on the ladder, and this is not just the self-esteem of other men, but the self-esteem, you know, the, the, the degree that my wife loves me and respects me and likes the fact that we're, you know, that I'm really uh, successful and is proud of me, and my, my children can say, my dad is this, my dad is that, or, you know, that type of thing, and men have to understand that we have to question the bribes, and the bribes are bribes like appreciation. And, uh, you know, the need to be appreciated keeps the slave a slave. Right. Right. So the real evolutionary shift that we have to do with boys and with our sons is to is to do the same types of things that the women's movement has encouraged for women to do. The best part of the women's movement is encourage women to look inside of themselves and say, you can be anything you want to be. And that's the same parallel question that no one has helped boys ask themselves. And that was not a functional question to be asked of boys for tens of thousands of years because we didn't want to say to boys, uh, you can be anything you want to be, because most boys would not have said, oh, I'd like to go to war and die. Uh, that sounds really good to me. Um, and right. therefore, we would have had no warriors. Uh, it was only by saying, in order to be a man, you will be a hero. And um, as a hero, you'll be willing to die or you'll be willing to you know, go to heaven and have you know, 82 virgins or whatever, and you'll be respected by the family and create a place for your family in heaven. So whether you're Muslim or whether you're Christian, you learn that heaven, respect, adoration, uh, statues made in your honor, those are all things that you were told would happen, that you'd leave a legacy if you were willing to be disposable. But women have not had that false definition of power. But men have basically learned to define power as feeling obligated to earn money. Someone right. spends while they die sooner. Right. So for the man, you know, the, the man's way of expressing his love for the family is to take the promotion and spend less time with the family. That's right. This is what I call the father's catch-22, that men learn to love the family by being away from the love of the family meaning that we are away from the love of the family and, you know, we're traveling overnight for our job or our career. And oftentimes in the process, our wife and children don't feel nurtured and loved directly by us. 
what women have learned to do to love their family is to give love directly to the children, directly to the husband. And she is paid to do that by the, the work that men do when those men are successful. But what men do to learn to love the family are exactly the things that take them away from the love of the family by being in the workplace more hours and longer hours. Also, successful men learn characteristics in the process of becoming successful that make them successful at work, that make them unsuccessful at home. That is, the good attorney learns to listen to the opponent only long enough to be able to form criticisms of the opponent's lawyer in his mind's eye. But if when you take that ability to criticize and argue, and you take that ability home to your wife and your children, it does not endear you. It doesn't deepen your love for them. So the right. very thing that's making him lovable, that is bringing in the money, is making him unlovable. And that's the internal contradiction that men have to understand in order to rethink what masculinity is about. So how do you suggest that we actually start shifting that? I mean, you know, when when women began coming into the public sphere in mass decades ago, you know, it was a very difficult process, obviously, and it took a lot of individual women really, uh, you know, pushing themselves, really throwing themselves against the glass ceiling in order to make a change. But change was able to occur because, you know, these things in the public sphere can be measured. I mean, we can measure economic realities. We can measure political realities. We can, you know, count the number of heads in the Senate and see how many are men, how many are women, how many are black, how many are white, and so forth. But when we're talking about making the shift for men into really embodying these interior dimensions of living in today's world, how can we track that? Well, how can we start it, and then how can we track it? Yes, it's a really good question, very insightful. We start by giving people some of the outward measures of what is happening that is disastrous. First of all, we talk about boys and not men because when we talk about men, women become defensive for the most part. When we talk about boys, women become protective and their heart opens because they are, especially if we talk about their sons, because, because women are biologically programmed to protect their children and their heart opens when they hear something that might benefit their, their sons. So if you talk to a, a woman about, you know, that many of the men that she's going out with, they're afraid of taking the sexual initiative, like, oh my God, she's remembering all the men that are jerks that have overtaken that initiative that seems to just want to get into her pants. But if, she, if you talk about her son, being fearful of reaching out and calling a girl and taking the initiative, she remembers how her son has been shaking about calling a you know calling a girl and right. and, she, and she feels all the empathy to oh yeah I know he really does I'm amazed I can see you know I see a new side of men by seeing my son's fear and she had her heart opens up and so the first thing we need to do is to talk predominantly about boys because that opens women's hearts and that helps women be more ally. Yeah. Secondly, we need to give some hard data. You know, the, the fact that um, our sons are far more likely to get ADD, ADHD, to drop out of school, to to be subject to depression. They're much less likely to be on the honor society. They're less likely to do well in every academic area. Uh, even math and science now, boys are equal to or slightly behind girls, uh, areas that they used to be way ahead. They're less likely to graduate from high school. They're less likely to go to college. And so now, you know, 57% of the college students are female. 
23% of the college students are male, and the higher you go in the ladder into um, schools of continuing education, uh, later in life it gets even more and more that way. And so something, uh, boys are committing um, suicide more frequently, but as the men get older, as I mentioned before, males and females over the age of 85, it's males that commit suicide 1,350% more than, than females. And right. so you and you look at the people in prison, it's still 90% males. You look at the homeless, it's 75 to 85% homeless, depending on which city you look at, are males. Not That's more males that are homeless than, than females that is unsheltered homeless. Street homeless are more males than females and children put together. And so, and you just give people lots of information. Now, that's the measurable stuff. It's an important point. You really can't measure depression, but you can measure suicide rates. Yes, absolutely. Then you move to the less measurable stuff and you say, okay, so now we can see that there's a problem. And then what's the solution? And then the solution becomes acknowledging the great work that the women's movement has done to create options for women and to understand that our sons don't have those options. And then level three is saying, why don't our sons have those options? Why are we still saying to our sons, we'll cheer for you when you're a football player, even though the football playing is more likely to get spinal cord injuries and and concussions and uh, dislocated shoulders, and we'll still encourage you to, to play while you're getting those shoulders. Why is it that we expect you to be the ones to risk the sexual rejection? Why do we expect you to be the ones to pay for the dates? What is the common denominator of all those expectations? And the common denominator is not the encouragement of our sons to have choices. It's the encouragement of our sons to play roles. And then we begin to start looking at the internal. That opens the door to the internal, the suggestion that our sons are being discouraged from looking inside of themselves and say, who do I really want to be? Not that I should provide options for my wife and I still have only one option, which is to figure out how to support my wife by earning enough money. And those are the job of the next generation. That's what I call the evolutionary shift between men as playing roles and men being able to look inside of themselves. That's what the women's movement has helped women do. That is what nobody has helped men do. And the problem with that is that you know, the women's movement has helped women row on both sides of the metaphorical boat. That is, they've you know, taught them to raise children and raise money. But we've still taught men largely to row on one side of that boat, which is raise money. The problem with that is that if we teach women how to row on both sides of the boat and men know how to row only on one side of the boat, when a boat is rowed on only from one side... And we end up just going around in circles. We go, end up going around in circles, and you're far more likely to hit the rocks and sink when you're going around in circles. The women's movement has been effective for about you know 30 years, and you know the good news is that it's been effective in creating both of those roles for for women. The bad news is that it has, the shadow side of the women's movement is that it has demonized men and demonized the family. And yet the women's movement isn't completely responsible for that. You know, as I wrote one book called Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say. And, mm. you know, the core, the core message of that book is we men have to stop, you know, we have to get our heads out of being such cowards that we can't, 
we feel we can't talk to women, and that means we have to be less dependent upon female sex and female love and more courageous and say, you know, I need to share with you my feelings, even if they do move you in a different direction. I need to work through them with you. I need to be able to listen to you as well. We need to start doing the work of relationships, and right. that's, and that's the, the next step for men to become more powerful as people. It seems really important to start taking that onus sort of, you know, away from women solely. You know, it's not just their responsibility to, as you say, roll on both sides of the boat, especially in today's world where most women are forced to row on both sides of the boat. You know, I mean, it's, it's a different world than it was 50, 60 years ago where today, you know, the average family requires two breadwinners in order to support a family. Yes. So it seems like women right from the get-go are forced. It's like, well, you know, you need to become competent in the private sphere and you need to become competent in the public sphere. And men, meanwhile, barely even know that a private sphere exists. Precisely. And, and it's unfair to women for men not to know how to row on that second side of the boat because in the course of the next generation, the chances are fairly good there will be times in a woman's life that even if she decides to be the predominant child raiser as opposed to money raiser, that the, you know that a man is very likely to be out of work and she will need to be the family's predominant um, breadwinner. And conversely, that man, when he's out of work, even if that's his, if, even if he defines himself as a predominantly a, a breadwinner, he should be um, able to raise the children. And the amazing and wonderful thing is that the hard data on this, when I wrote Father and Child Reunion, I found that children raised predominantly by men do extremely well in all 26 areas of measurement, psychological, social, academic, and um, physical health. And women who are focused on their careers do better than their male counterparts uh, when they're focused on their careers. And so there's really enormous opportunity for women to raise money and for men to raise children, but we have to value men raising children. We have to teach men to value that part of themselves, whereas men usually only discover that part of themselves after a divorce, and they suddenly see that men are 10 times as likely to commit suicide as women are. And one of the reasons for that is that suicide takes seed when people feel four feelings. They feel that nobody loves them, nobody needs them, there's no hope of that changing, and they don't know how to express their feelings to, to people who will empathetically listen to them. And that tends to happen to men after divorce when oftentimes the woman has the children and then the children he feels are turned against him. And so he feels that there's nobody that loves him, nobody that needs him, no hope of that changing because the system doesn't make it very easy for that to change. And then um, he doesn't often feel he has very good men friends to share those feelings with and he becomes very vulnerable to suicide. Right, right. Yeah, tragically uh, epidemic in America. Yes, and you know that suicide in that context I just mentioned is oftentimes not just a suicide, but very frequently it will be a homicide suicide where the you know the man will kill the woman and then turn around and kill himself, and right. also turn around and kill his children, so that because he knows now that the children have nobody to be raised by, and that's you know that's a type of disaster that is singing forth from people who aren't heard and um, don't have a place in the world. Yeah. Well, it's um, great. Talking with you, Kari. It's really yeah, this has been great. This has been really, really great. Thank you so much for uh, for getting on the phone with me. And did, did you have any final thoughts about the Daily Show clip? 
I guess if I were to sort of conclude based on what our original discussion was as to, you know, here is a situation that I was faced with where I had a chance to do an adventure and I knew it was going to turn out in such a way that many people would misunderstand. But I, I think I choose and would choose again in the future to sort of develop the part of myself that is, you know, able to not be attached to having to always be looked at really well and to have fun and to do the adventure of life. And um, you learn more by going through that adventure, I, I feel. But that's only my choice that others can either choose to follow or not. Well, that's really great. That's really great. Thank you so much, Warren. Well, great to talk with you. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. All right, my friend. All right. Have a good day. Thank Bye. you.